Hi, Melanie here from Aviation Tours, unique itineraries for aviation enthusiasts, taking you to some of the most amazing air shows and events in the UK and Australia. They're leisurely, comfortable, fun, escorted, and to all the places you've been wanting to visit. If independent travels out of your comfort zone, or you just prefer the good company of fellow enthusiasts, on a tour taking in the best aviation, motoring and military museums, take a look at our website, aviationtoursnz.com, for more info and join us on the trip of a lifetime. Or call me for a chat on 021 076 8308. Wings Over Britain is proudly supported by the New Zealand Bomber Command Association. Telling the stories of Bomber Command and the New Zealanders who served. Wings Over Britain and the Wings Over New Zealand show greatly acknowledges the fantastic support from Peter and Carola Wheeler of the Hauraki Brewing Company. And we'd like to acknowledge the awesome support from Mel and Kev Salisbury at Aviation Tours NZ. And a huge thanks to all the others out there who kindly supported the tour and the series. Without them, the series wouldn't have been made. Vintage Aviation News is pleased to support Wings Over Britain and Wings Over New Zealand. And we'll be checking in with reports as Dave's tour progresses. Vintage Aviation News is an organization founded by a group of passionate vintage aviation enthusiasts who love to share the history and technology aviation museums preserve for the public. It's our intention to play a role in safeguarding the heritage of these beautiful machines by providing increased awareness and education through the use of internet-based digital media. Vintage Aviation News is an online news resource dedicated to warbirds, aviation museums, vintage aviation, and aviation heritage, and the many enthusiasts who wish to know more about them. The goal of this site is to provide fresh, daily news content for a large community of aviation fans who visit our page regularly. Vintage Aviation News Online can be found on your usual social media channels and at VintageAviationNews.com. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. So I'm sitting here with Steve Bridgewater. Hi, Steve. Hi, Dave. Good to see you. Good to see you. Um, we caught up this morning in London and I came along to your workplace, uh, which is the headquarters of the Royal Aeronautical Society. I'm incredibly lucky to call that, that place my office. Yes, very, very lucky. Absolutely. What a place. It's incredible. It is. And, you know, um, if anyone's ever seen the photographs of it, it's wonderful marble um, columns. And it's the fact that it used to be the Duke of Wellington's house way back when. So um, yeah. we took the building over in 1938, just prior to the war. 
and uh, it was renovated sympathetically to uh, to retain a lot of its original heritage and of course it's gained a lot more heritage over the years yeah. so as you saw earlier we've got lots of paintings of past presidents including people like frederick handley page on the wall so it's uh, you really feel you're you're walking in british aviation history absolutely there's history at every turn and amazing artifacts and paintings and um, I mean, just look up at all the ceilings and, uh, you know, you, you think, well, the Duke of Wellington from the Napoleonic days stood under these ceilings. It's quite incredible. It's incredible. And, you know, right in the centre of Mayfair as well on the corner of Park Lane and Piccadilly looking out over Hyde Park. Yeah. I, I still pinch myself each time I go into the office in the morning. You, you push open that big mahogany door and um, it, it couldn't be any more British, really, could it? <laughs> so I'm, I'm incredibly lucky. I, you know, I turned a hobby into a job 25 years ago and... Um, got away with it ever since nobody's rumbled me yet <laughs> <laughs> well we'll get to uh how you ended up there uh in a bit but also we uh, visited the royal air force club uh which is just around the corner uh went there for lunch and i mean another stunning place again the the, the history in in the building and you know the it's like walking in an art gallery isn't it you know it there's, there's so many original paintings there and rf standards and and Busts of, I mean, who do we see today? Busts of, there was uh, Frank Whittle, Barnes Wallace, R.J. Mitchell, uh, yeah, Tommy Sopworth. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the, the great and the good of, of Royal Air Force and, and British aviation history. But, yeah, it, it's, again, it, it's, um, I, I'm very lucky, as a non-Royal Air Force, a non-service member, I'm an affiliate member of the club through some work, which I think we'll, we'll probably talk on a bit later on with the um, Honourable Company of Air Pilots. But, yeah. um, so I'm lucky as a civilian to be a member of the club. So it's, um, my wife jokingly calls it my second home. <laughs> <laughs> I can see why you want to spend a lot of time there. It's great. That's yeah, brilliant. It is. Uh, so just give me a little um, overview of the clientele there they're mostly ex-Air Force officers at the club yes most uh, either current or serving and um, and retired um, uh, officers from the Royal Air Force and um, we've got affiliate membership with uh, other clubs around the, around the world as well so see quite a lot of American Air Force officers across we've got a um, uh, a deal with the American Air Force Club, I think it's in DC, that uh, we can use each other's clubs. So it's always interesting. You, you walk into, we've got the place called the Running Horse, which is the bar down in the basement. Yeah. Um, which the, There was originally a, a bar in medieval times on that site called the Running Horse. So as you saw, Dave, you walk down and you feel as though you're in an English country pub, even though you're in central London. You do, it's incredible. Sort of oak beams and brass everywhere. Uh, and you never really know who you're going to bump into, whether it's you know, a retired Air Commodore or current member of the Red Arrows or serving personnel. It's always really interesting conversations over a beer late at night. Yeah, I can so imagine. It's a relatively cheap place to stay as a member in London, but that's before you factor in your bar bill. <laughs> <laughs> True. <laughs> Well, just imagine the people that have been into both those places uh, over the years. Exactly, as I said, with the Aeronautical Society, we you know we, we moved there in 1938, but we actually started in 1866, yeah. which of course was significantly earlier than the first powered aeroplane. Yes. You know, and we were set up, and I've got it in front of me. Our object objectives of the society were given as the advancement of aerial navigation and for observations of aerology connected <laughs> therewith. So you know, we didn't even have aviation at that time it was yeah. aerology wow. um so you know our, our mission has always been to look at new technology look at the advancement of aviation space and aerospace um and and push the boundaries discuss what's new 
And you know, we're, at the moment, we're going through the whole eVTOL sustainability revolution, people looking at green flight, and lots of people saying, ah, it'll never happen, the battery technology will never be good enough. If you look back through our journals, people were saying that you know, back in 1900 that we'd, we'd never have a powered aeroplane. Right. So we're, we're having that, that, we've continually pushed those boundaries and have that, that role in aerospace. And the other thing we, we try and do is promote aerospace careers. Um, both the people who work within the sector that want to advance their career and meet other people. And also we've got a lot of STEM and outreach programs where we, we work with schools and, and organisations to try and encourage youth into aerospace. And that's my real hobby horse. Although my, my, my job at the Society is deputy editor on the magazine. I work with Tim Robinson, who's our editor-in-chief. My passion really is youth in aerospace, and that's something that we're getting better at. But we've still got a lot of opportunities to do better in this country and I know around the world as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we'll get back more into your current role, but can you step right back and tell me how you first got interested in aviation? I don't really know. It's a simple answer. There was, there's no aviation history. There's no military history in the family. Yeah. Both of my grandparents were coal miners. My grandfathers were coal miners, so they were retained occupations during the war. Yeah. Um, my dad worked in a factory. Um, he worked for the Reliant Car Factory, you know, the Reliant Robin, the three-wheel yeah. car. Yeah. He did his apprenticeship there as a toolmaker. Like Del Boy's band. Absolutely, yeah, that's it. Yeah. Um, so th there was no history, but whereas other kids grew up with pictures of footballers on their wall, I grew up with pictures of aeroplanes. Right. Um, was very lucky that I got supportive parents who took me to air shows as a child. And then if you look behind you, Dave, right now, there's a painting on the wall of a, a DC-3. Yeah. And that's a painting. I, I lost my father a couple of years ago. And with some of my inheritance, I commissioned that painting from uh, Graham Henderson, who's an amazing artist and yes. a really good friend. Yeah. And um, that painting depicts the, the very first flight I had in an aeroplane at the age of 11. Always had airfix models, rubbish at them, but always built airfix models. Had radio controlled aeroplanes from a young age. Um, never any good at building them, uh, but my dad was, wasn't very good at flying them. So we had a great relationship where my dad would build, I would fly, I would crash, and he would mend. It were, you know, somebody got everything out of the relationship. Yeah. It was great. Um, and then the Bottle Flying Club in 1986 had a trip on one of the Air Atlantic DC-3s oh, okay. and um, my parents couldn't afford for both me and my dad to go so um, I went on my own at aged 11 and that was it I was absolutely hooked um, so the, the painting that you, you see there it's got bits moody skies behind it because we sat on the ground for probably three hours waiting for the weather to clear okay um, went out scud running low level in the DC-3 over the model flying field yeah, did a couple of orbits around under the low cloud and back in, but that that was it. I was hooked for for life then. <laughs> <laughs> wow, okay. And um, so from there, where did you enter aviation properly? I went off to university um, at Coventry, which is where Air Atlantique, Air Atlantique are based, and I started work as a volunteer tour guide, showing people around the hangars by this point. Air Atlantic had got about 12 DC-3s, mm -hmm. uh, a couple of DC-6s, Lockheed Electras, but the owner was starting to build a collection of vintage aeroplanes, so Dragon Rapides right through to Classic Jets. Yeah. Uh, so I was a, a volunteer tour guide and spent a bit of time doing that. And then in the year 2000, uh, my favourite magazine at the time, Flypast, advertised for a deputy editor. Okay. And I'd got no writing experience, um, but I thought, well, in for a penny, in for a pound, and I, I put my application in and got called for an interview at uh, Key Publishing's headquarters um, where I met Ken Ellis, who was editor at the time, and Ken Delve, 
uh, who um, is very famous in the world of cameras, also written lots of books, yeah. and was working at Key at the time. And they said, lovely to see you. We've already filled the job at Flypast, but we are launching a magazine aimed at getting kids involved in aviation. Okay. And I was 25 at the time. They said, you're the youthful face of aviation. Would you like to come and join us? And they taught me to write. So um, I, I spent a little bit of time at Air Action. This was just pre-9-11. Okay. So the magazine was built on the premise that it would be supported by advertising revenue from big industry. So British Airways would advertise their cadetships for their cadet pilots. Rolls-Royce would advertise their apprenticeships. And, right. of course, post-9-11, that all fell away. So the magazine died off. Um, and I stepped over into a role at a magazine called Today's Pilot, which was a general aviation uh, private flying magazine. Okay. Um, so I was um, assistant editor and deputy editor there um, with an editor called Dave Unwin. And um, I stayed there for about six or seven years. Okay. Um, and then... I've worked at various magazines since then. Right. <laughs> um, so everything from the Aircraft Drones and Pilots Association, um, spent a little bit of time editing Aeroplane Monthly, um, spent 10 years editing a magazine called Jets Monthly, which is all about early vintage jets. Um, gosh, what else have I done? It sounds like I can't hold down a job, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, um, and then a year ago, uh, the Royal Aeronautical Society um, were foolish enough to employ me as their new deputy editor. Um, so I replaced somebody who retired after 22 years in the job. So I reckon it's got to be a good gig. And I have to say it's the, it's the best place I've ever worked and with the best team. I, mean, I work with Tim Robinson, who uh, you may know from some of the extended podcasts and yes. things like that. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's honestly like working with my best friend. I'm really, really lucky. So, okay. so like I say, I turned a hobby into a job and um, got away with it ever since. Um, but in amongst the magazine world, um, I was approached gosh, about 15 years ago now, by Air Atlantique, who I'd volunteered for. I'd always stayed in touch with them. Yeah. And they were launching something called the Classic Flight Club. And they asked me to join to uh, to help set that up. And I ended up as the commercial operations director for Air Atlantique and the airbase museum that we had at Coventry. Yeah. And um, I would sit in my office and I would look out of my window and there was the same DC-3 that I'd flown at the age of 11, which yeah. was uh, Alpha Mike Romeo Alpha, so Gamera. Um, and for me, yeah, that was coming full circle for me. Just, just, yeah, yeah, the, the, yeah, the, the, the completing the circle. Yes, so it's something that always felt very, very good. Um, so no, I've, I've been lucky. I've always spent a lot of time on the air show scene, and um, yeah, I've, I've got away with it. And touch wood, I keep continuing to do so. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well done. Um, I know that uh, you have a, a big interest in warbirds and, and classic aviation as well, and you've appeared on Warbird Radio in the past. Yeah, I've done quite a lot of stuff with Matt Jolly over the years, yeah. um, do a bit of stuff with um, Mo at Vintage Aviation News as well. Yeah. Um, it, it's just a nice world to be part of. I mean, yeah, as you know from New Zealand, it's yeah, there are a lot of really nice people in the vintage aviation world and the warbird world. Yeah. Um, you know, whether you're interested in the history of the aeroplanes, whether you're interested in the excitement of seeing them fly or flying them, um, it's just a great environment to be in. And my particular interest is in the preservation. It's in the the aircraft that are flying, the people that are restoring them and operating them, but also the history of those aeroplanes. Because I think that's a, a we, we're at a stage now where warbirds themselves are historic. Yes. You know, you look back at some of the aeroplanes that have been flying. Take MH434, for example, the off-flying machine company Spitfire. You know, that, that has been a warbird now for, what, 50, 60, 60 years yeah. uh, as a civilian-operated aeroplane. So I, I, 
I have a fascination in, in where those aircraft have been, the people that have flown them, the markings they've worn over the years. And I think that's something which is going to, I think, grow in interest over the coming years. Um, you know, we're getting lots of new restorations all the time, which is fantastic. Yeah. But, I mean, Sally B, you know, has been for the B-17, has been flying in the UK now for 48 years. Wow. Yeah. And the reason I know that is the very first display that Sally B flew was at Biggin Hill, and it was on May the 18th, 1975. And that was the day I was born. Ah. So I know exactly how long Sally B's been in the country. <laughs> right. um, so, you know, it's coming up to its 50th anniversary. So, you know, to yeah. have you know, one aeroplane in the same hands for, for five decades really is, is something. You know, it becomes history in itself. Yeah, absolutely. So you were explaining before about the... Uh the Guild of Air Pilots, and, and can you tell me that story again? Yeah, by all means. Um, I was invited about 15 years ago, probably a bit more now, to join what was then called the Guild of Air Pilots and Air Navigators, or GAPAN as it, it abbreviates to. Um, a few years ago, we had an, um, a royal charter, so we're now the Honourable Company of Air Pilots. So I'm sure as you go, all pilots are honourable, there's no, no debate over that. <laughs> um, so... A guild is a very British thing, and, it's, and it goes back to medieval times within the city of London. So by the city, I mean the square mile, what's now effectively the financial district of London, not the greater borough of London, the, the square mile. Yeah. If you wanted to trade within that square mile, you had to be a member of a guild. Um, that meant that your work was a, a suitable standard. Effectively, I guess it was trading standards of its day. Yeah. So um, you would join as an associate, which was effectively an apprentice, and you would learn your trade. So there were guilds of leather makers or stationers or basket weavers or whatever it happened to be, there was a guild of it. Yeah. So you would start as an associate, as an apprentice, and then when you'd qualified in your trade, you became a freeman. So in other words, you were a free man. You were able to trade, set your own business up, make money within the city. Yeah. And then if you were successful, you were invited to become a liveryman. So you would take the livery. And that meant that you were able to vote for the Lord Mayor. So obviously a lot of power, that, political power that would go with the liveryman. Now, guilds faded off in, in, in time. You know, there, was, you know, there was no need for this to carry on. But those guilds are still around. So there still is the Guild of Basket Weavers and all these different things. Yeah. But there are also a number of new guilds. So the Guild of Air Pilots and Air Navigators was formed in 1929 okay. um, by Sir Sefton Branca. Um, and... I guess in a way similar aims to we've got at the Royal Aeronautical Society in that it was about advancing aviation, but more on the piloting side than the aerospace and the manufacturing and the development and the technological side. Um, so um, so I was invited to become a, a member of the Guild, as was, uh, as an associate. And uh, there were a group of us at the time that set up something called the Guild Young Members, which neatly abbreviates to Jim. So our website was Join the Jim. <laughs> um, so um, I, I served on that committee until I was 35, which was the cutoff date of, of a young member. Um, but in that time, I'd been invited to become a freeman. Yep. And a few years ago, I was in, in, invited to take the livery. So I'm now a liveryman of the City of London. There's a certificate above my desk here, which says uh, Stephen David Bridgewater, citizen and air pilot of London. Um, so um, there's a, a big ceremony at uh, the Guildhall in London. And um, you are robed, you have, you, you know, you're clothed with the, the ermine. And it, it, it's a huge honour to, to have something like that. Right. But again, it's the history that goes with it. So we are, um, yeah, as a liveryman, um, if I'm sentenced to death within the city of London, I'm entitled to a silk rope, which apparently is less painful. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, if I am found drunk and disorderly within the city of London, the arresting officer is duty bound to put me in a cab, send me home and pay for the cab. Wow. Nobody's tested this in recent times. <laughs> Likewise, nobody's tested the ability to carry an unsheathed sword in public within the city. <laughs> um, but there are things that we still do do. So you know, we're entitled to uh, to drive our, our sheep over the bridge into London, wow. um, which the guilds and the honourable companies do once a year for charity. Um, they have to be metropolitan police approved sheep. You can't take your own sheep. The sheep have to be vetted to uh, to, to fit the role. Yeah. Um, but there are, there are lots of really great things like that. And yeah, you know, somebody like yourself, Dave, that's a writer, you, you'll appreciate the sort of the entomology of words. And yes. um, when I was um, went for my, my um, ceremony at the Guild Hall, they explained to me that as a liveryman of the city, you no matter what crime you commit, you cannot be sentenced to death or um, um, uh, uh, jailed within within the city. So what they have to do is they banish you to the second city, the second best city in England. Yeah. Do you know where they send you, Dave? Where's yeah. the second best city in England? They send you to Coventry. <laughs> and that's where the phrase sending someone to Coventry comes right, from. Right. And there's lots of those things that go back to those those guilds. So there's a hierarchy of, of the companies and the guilds. So... I, I might be wrong. I think the, the Guild of Leather Makers, I think, is number one, as in it was the first one that was created. Yeah. Uh, and then there's number two and three and four and so on. But there was also a bit of doubt about who was formed sixth and who was formed seventh. Yeah. Um, so what they would do is they would, they would each have a year, so they'd alternate. One would be number six one year, one would be number six or seven uh, the next. And it got so confusing that everyone was at sixes and sevens. Oh, <laughs> so there's lots... Of th- and, and uh, you know, as a, as a journalist, that, that entomology of words... Is is something which I find really interesting, yeah. and again during the, the ceremony, the um, it was you know you you sign the book and you swear your allegiance to the Queen and, and and all that sort of thing as it was at the time, and uh, it was said to me, well you know um, you, you do realise when we look back at all the misdemeanours, all the fines that were given out to liverymen back in the day, you know which which trade had the most fines, and it was the journalists. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and of course the irony is having been said we'll send you to Coventry I went to university in Coventry <laughs> so it just for me again it's another of those full circle moments oh, yeah, that yeah. Um, that's great but, uh, I mean I, I, I live in, in the Midlands in the country so um, halfway between Nottingham and Derby if anybody knows the, the middle of the country um, but we're, we're, we're blessed here with so much aviation heritage, heritage as well. So, um, you know, we, we have a garden party here and lots of members from the Honourable Company come and members of the Aeronautical Society. My, my wife's a doctor, so uh, we have lots of medical people. And then what I refer to as normal people who are not, not journalists, not aviation people, not medics, just normal people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so. Is there a local airfield around uh, here where you live that you frequent or...? We're actually within the circuit of East Midlands Airport, um, which is a big freight airfield here in the UK, but it's also home to the Rolls-Royce Spitfire and Mustangs, so you'll quite often hear the growl of a Griffin from the Mark 19 Spitfire as it comes overhead on an air test, or the the P-51 Mustang with its Merlin. Um, Local airfields to here, the most uh, local is Tolerton, which is Nottingham, Um, it was very famous as an air racing airfield pre-war. Um, but of course, yeah, we're, we're not very far from Lincolnshire, so we're right on the site of the, uh, you know, the bomber fields right. littered in every, every corner of every field, pretty much as you get out into Lincolnshire. I know you've been to Lincolnshire already on this trip, yep. but um, the um, the area here is um, very industrial, so we don't particularly have the airfields here, but we have the Rolls-Royce plant where they built Merlin engines and still build turbine engines down about five miles as the crow flies from here. Yeah. 
Um, so there's lots of lots of history that goes with that. And uh, I know we were on the train earlier coming up from uh, from London, weren't we? And we, we passed uh, Loughborough, where the Brush Coach Works is. Right. And of course, as I pointed out, you know that's that's where de Havilland dominates or Dragon Repeat. A huge amount were made in the latter years of the war. So things were outsourced from the main factories. De Havilland by then were busy making mosquitoes, so that the the Dragon Repeats were put out to furniture companies like Brush Coachworks or yeah, the Coachworks. Yeah. And the nearest town to where I am here is called Ilkeston, which has got a silent K. It's actually pronounced Ilson. Okay. Um, and we found out recently that there's a mill, which I've driven past probably hundreds of times, that during the war was used for refurbishing merlins. And even right. people in this the, the village that, that lived here most of their lives never knew that was the case. And it was just something that came out in local media recently, photographs of bowfighter power eggs in in the mill in Ilson. So, yeah. Um, yeah, it's, you know, World War II heritage is something that we're very conscious of in the UK. We're very proud of our veterans. We're very proud of the role that the home front played. Obviously, the war was on the home front. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we're getting to that point now where there are not that many veterans around from that era. And one of my real strong feelings is that we you know we've lost a lot of stories from those days i know dave you've been doing great work preserving um the, yeah in new zealand the, the the voices of these people yeah. but there's a there's another generation of people on the cusp yeah we're losing a lot of the cold war guys now yeah and so and there's there, there's uh, an effort needs to be made to i was at 92 squadrons reunion um last friday with dave gladhill and um air commodore rick peacock edwards and yeah, there was some of the guys in there that have flown with ninety two way back when, and yeah, they've got some amazing stories yeah, to tell. Yeah, whether they were on lightnings or they were on phantoms. Yeah, um, so I know people like Dave Gledhill and um, Tug Wilson are doing great jobs putting books out now with this sort of stuff. But yes. it'd be nice to get some of their own words recorded as well. Yeah, yeah, true. Uh, um, I know that uh, one of you, one part of your job with. The Royal Aeronautical Society is that you actually now do a podcast as well uh, with Tim, mm. and um, you kind of cover all the month's news in uh, in your podcast. Tell me, tell me about that. How did it come about? And um, it came about because it's something that we felt we'd wanted to do for a while. Um, we didn't necessarily have the manpower to do it, yeah. um, so we we produce um, a monthly magazine for our members. Um, so we've got 26,000 members around the world now who are okay. all aerospace professionals. So that might be people who design aircraft, build aircraft, work on aircraft, fly aircraft. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, a very eclectic mix of members. So we cover everything from cyber warfare and space right the way down to kit planes and yeah, even human-powered aircraft, you know, like the Gossamer Albatross-type pedal-powered aircraft. Yeah. Um, so... We, we we cover a broad section of the magazine in the magazine every month and we also do a twice weekly blog um so you don't have to be a member to read the blog yeah. um so the blog goes out every tuesday and friday if you just go to aerosociety.com you can see the blog free of charge yeah. um and a few people had said to us off the back of the blog well it'd be really nice if you could do a podcast and um you know, we listen to things like Extended and Wings Out of New Zealand, and yeah, yeah we think, well, it's, yeah, we're not really professionals at this, but we'll give it a go. And it seems to seems to have, have got some legs, so we yeah. get good feedback on it. So we we talk about what's in the magazine that month, so it's a bit of a sales pitch, if you like, yeah. and then, as you say, the news. 
There's so much aerospace news at the moment. Yeah. We, you know, we, the system that Tim and I have is we alternate each day. That One of us will write for the magazine. And one of us spends the day looking for news. So we yeah. trawl the web, press releases, contact all of our contacts that we know at BA Systems or Raytheon or Boeing or Airbus, whoever it is. And um, we end up with a colossal amount of news that we can't physically physically fit in a magazine. Yeah. Um, so we try and share some of the news that we can't get in there. Um, and then talk about the events that are going on as well. And obviously, we're, we're rapidly into air show season here in the UK. So, um, you know, we've um, we've been to Midland Airfest, and um, which was a great event, a couple of Shuttleworth shows. And, uh, of course, we've got Flying Legends coming up um, next couple of days as we record this, International Air to Two, then I'll have to Oshkosh. So there's going to be lots of stuff to talk about in the next podcast. Yeah, for sure. Um, but again, we just, um, you know, we, we, we sit a recorder down and we have a cup of coffee and a chat. And, um, you know, like I said earlier, you know, I, I work with my best mate. So um, it, it's uh, two, two blokes talking about aeroplanes. That's probably the best way to describe the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, the Royal Aeronautical Society has been making recordings for decades and decades and, and it's really interesting to see that they're all coming out through the, the it, website now it, it is you know we, we also have the national aerospace library which we fund which is at farnborough yeah. and um, if anybody is in the uk and, and hasn't been i thoroughly recommend contact us and, and come and see the national aerospace library it really is a a hidden gem mm-hmm. and you know books magazine every possible magazine you can imagine right the way back to the very first issue of flight and the aeroplane and popular flying and and um you know we, we continue to add magazines to that every month now so we've got a constant record uh, but also books from around the world and artifacts and um you know some of the amazing artifacts we've got and as you say sound recordings so the um Back in the old days, the um, yeah, the lecture theatre at the Royal Aeronautical Society was the place to be. You know, if you wanted to advance your career pre-LinkedIn and pre-Facebook, you would go to the Royal Aeronautical Society, you'd hand a business card over at lunch or at dinner or a lecture, and that's how you, you advance through the, through the, through the industry. Um, and those lectures were recorded. So um, we're now getting those digitised, and you know, there's the likes of, Winkle Brown, and you know, there's there's, and again, as you say, we're we're releasing those out through our Insight blogs and through the National Aerospace Library website. Yeah. It's just a goldmine of things on there. You know, Eric Brown talking about flying with Ernst Uday in in the late thirties in Germany yeah. uh, as as a child. You know, he, he you know he was probably fourteen or fifteen years old and got to fly with Ernst Uday, and he, he tells a story about um, flying the entire circuit inverted. <laughs> and uh, worrying that they were going to crash because it was only at the last minute that Uday flipped the aeroplane back the right way round and, and flared to land. Wow! wow. Uh, but to hear that in Eric's own words is is really special. Absolutely. Um, so yeah. So we, but some of the artifacts as well. You know, um, you may be aware of George Cayley, who was you know the uh, sort of the father of the aeroplane in the UK. Yeah. And um, you know, Sam Cody was the per- first person that flew a powered aeroplane, but. You know, um, Cody way back when in the 1800s was was developing you know the you know, the controls of flight, so your pitch roll. Yeah. Um, and we have his notebooks, and I've held in my hand George Cayley's notebooks wow. that have you know handwritten with his diagrams, and it's just a, a wealth of material that we've managed to save over the course of the years. And um, it, it's it's just a, a gold mine. If for if, you, if you're researching something it really is a gold mine and you know as a member of the royal aeronautical society you can use the facilities there for free and, and you know and take books out and and use it as a, as a library as it's supposed to be right but yeah great facility that so few people know about yeah i mean 
<laughs> if you're interested in aviation, if you're working in aviation in this country, you, you really should become a member, shouldn't you? So. Well, I would say this, but yeah, it it has several benefits. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, we're going through a relevancy project at the moment at, at the society. Um, yeah, we we've been around since eighteen sixty six. So, what's the point in the Aeronautical Society? What do we do? What's the Royal Aeronautical Society doing? Not just for you and me, mm. but for our children and grandchildren coming through. So, what what will our role be moving forwards? Because we've got LinkedIn now. You don't need to come and hand over a business card at a dinner, or you know, or a lunch, or a lecture, or. Um, so we've got a lot of discussion moving ahead. But we we in my opinion, we have a vital role in that. We have a huge amount of STEM outreach, and I think for furthering not necessarily your career. But the people coming in behind you, yeah. Um, yeah, we, we have lots of outreach programs that we do to schools and um, we do a lot of endpoint assessments for apprenticeships, um, for aerospace related apprenticeships, um, which is something that we've found a niche for. Um, and as I said earlier, youth in aerospace is very much, you know, the first magazine I produced was aimed at getting kids involved. Yeah. And it's been my, my soapbox ever since. Yeah, yeah we are. Um, we're getting better in this country. Um I, I the first article I wrote for Aerospace, which is the name of our magazine at the Society, we called the Seventh Generation. So if you take Orville and Wilbur Wright as the first generation of aircraft builders, designers, and pilots, we're now coming up to Generation Seven. Right. So, what do we need to do to promote that to that generation? And and we asked the question: Does aerospace have an image problem? Why, why do kids not want to become aeronautical engineers, pilots, designers, engineers? Um, and the survey that we did, and this was talking to, to people that we knew of age 6 through to 26, so just a straw poll, yeah. was that aerospace doesn't have an image problem. What it's got is an awareness problem. Kids yeah. don't know these jobs exist. Yeah. So what we try to do with the society is get out, because get into the schools, get into colleges and say, look, this is a really cool industry. You know, I, I, I don't think there's been a more exciting time to be part of aviation since probably the start of the jet age. Okay. You know, we're at a point now where lots of the things that we grew up as thinking science fiction are rapidly becoming science fact. Artificial intelligence, yeah. eVTOL flying cars. We're not quite there yet, but we're not very far away. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, we're going back to the moon. We're going onwards to Mars. You know, but crucially, we've got the sustainability revolution. And, you know, aerospace in the grand scheme of things is not a big polluter when it comes to carbon. No, it's not. Not at all. But we're a very high profile one. Yeah. So we have to do something. And we have to be seen to do something to improve our carbon emissions. And there's so much work going on at the moment. I, I was in um, South Carolina earlier this year with Boeing seeing some of their sustainability projects. Last week, I was down in Filton near Bristol in the UK with Airbus looking at their wing of the future. Yeah. So there's so much technology coming through. So the message we need to get out to the kids of today is, yeah, you might think that aeroplanes are dirty and destroying the, the environment, but you could be the person who changes that. Yeah. yeah, you could be the next Frank Whittle. You could be the next Kelly Johnson. You know, so if we're not attracting them into the industry, and they're going off to write computer game software or to work in Formula One because that's seen as a more glitzy, sexy environment to be in. Yeah. Well, 
we're losing out on that potential of somebody coming in and being and you know there's so much exciting stuff going on at the moment you know defense as well you know we're working on fifth generation fighters now across the world you know we've, yeah. we've got gcap here in the uk team tempest and there's ngad in in america lots of other projects going on that are really advancing and i was talking to bae systems uh farnborough last year and they came out with a wonderful line it's a we need to recruit a thousand engineers in the next twelve months to work on Team Tempest. But the engineers that we want to recruit don't get oil down the back of their fingernails, and I think right. that for me is just hits the nail on the head. Because you think engineer, you think boiler suit covered in oil. Yeah, that's not engineering nowadays. And, you know, this is software development. Yeah, yeah, electronics, computing. So yeah, if you're a kid who is growing up writing software. Develop playing games, writing games. Those are the sort of people that we want in the in the defense and the aerospace industries now, working on real time projects. Yeah. So yeah, and that's the sort of thing we're doing with the society is promoting those careers and those opportunities to say, look, aerospace is actually really cool. Space is cool. Aviation yeah. is cool. Yeah. Come and join us. Also, uh, the society has recently started to recognise youth. Um through a new award that was uh, initiated this year. We did with the President's Award. So this, uh, we have a, a, a small team of paid employees at the Society, including a CEO. And then we have lots of volunteers who run specialist groups. So we have a specialist group for just about everything you could name, from human-powered aircraft through to unmanned aerial vehicles to, oh gosh, space flight, you name it. Um, and... From those, we have an elected president of the society each year. And this year's president is Carissa Khan. Carissa comes from an um, eVTOL urban air mobility background. She's only our second ever female uh, president, and she's our youngest ever president. Yep. And she wanted to make her mark by introducing a new award. We, don't, we have lots of awards during the year, but we never previously have given an award away at our gala dinner, um, which takes place in May. And so her... Award was her um, sort of person, you know, young young person's award. Yeah, you know, the the person making a big impact on on uh, the aerospace industry in whatever sector they're in. Yeah. And I think somebody that we know very well came across for it, didn't they? They did. Yes. Uh, yes. One young New Zealander, Bevan Jews, who came over to London to that uh, dinner. Uh, shortlisted down to the final three, yeah. and uh, it was great to see Bevan at the awards. Um, it was a great event, actually. We had. Um, the um, Gwen Shotwell, who's the chief operating officer at um, SpaceX, yeah. so Elon Musk's number two, effectively, yep. um, giving the keynote speech. And for somebody who didn't read from notes, she certainly went off script. It was a very memorable, you know, she was, um, I think somebody said she'd definitely been drinking the same Powerade as Elon. So uh, <laughs> she talked about um, obviously going back to the moon, but we don't want to go to the moon. I mean, yeah, what we want to do is go to Mars. But in fact, it's what we do. Yeah, we don't really want to go to Mars because Mars is a dump. I mean, she's Mars is fixer up planet. She called it. What we want to do is go to the next galaxy across. So, um, of course, you know, in order to get there, it's going to take us six thousand years. So, what we need to do is bend time and, and and look at warping time to get there. And and people started to snigger. And she said, "You might laugh now." She said. But people laughed at us when we said we'd, we'd launch a rocket and then we'd, we'd recover the same rocket vertically and land it on a pad in the middle of the ocean. And we do that yeah. most of the time. <laughs> so, but, but her point was, you know, there are people working on these technologies now. Yeah. Um, so it was great to see Carissa recognising that, that, that young person 
uh, of the future. Uh, and the, you know, the, the, the shortlist was really, really impressive. And it was it was great to see Bevan on there. Tell me about the uh, the nominees because there is three of them on there. There were three, um, and my mind has gone completely blank now as to uh, who the other two were. <laughs> 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 let me have a look let me have a look <laughs> I, I can tell you the winner um, so it was won by Maria Tarabinovsky um, who works for Flight Crowd so a big aviation charity here in the UK so very similar aims to ours at the Royal Aeronautical Society okay good and she's a um, a rocket scientist isn't she she is a rocket a Ukrainian rocket scientist yes yeah. so uh, Bevan, Bevan was up against stiff competition <laughs> definitely definitely <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, each I guess each of the nominees made an impact in their field, and um, it's really good that they're getting recognised, even if you know they didn't win. So, I think what was important for me was that Bevan was recognised for his role in the historic aviation world. Yeah, you know, as an industry, we're very good at looking forwards, uh, but it's nice sometimes to look backwards. And yeah, the the work that Bevan is doing, not just restoring aeroplanes and operating aeroplanes, but Again, inspiring other people to do it. Absolutely. You know, he's he's one of those characters that's very quietly spoken, but has a very infectious enthusiasm. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's what what came across and impressed so many people at the dinner. Fantastic. One actually talking about the past. Um, one thing that we did today that we didn't mention was visited visited the uh, Bomber Command Memorial just across the road from where you work. Just just over the, um, the other side of uh, Piccadilly from the Royal Air Force Club. In fact, if you come out the front doors of the Royal Air Force Club, it's just on the opposite side of the road. It's yeah. a very moving place, isn't it? Certainly was uh, is and you know it's um, the memorial was uh, erected. Um, what about 13 years ago? Yeah, 2012. Yeah, yeah it was open in 2012, and um, it's it was one of those things that was way too late to to recognise our bomber command veterans, and that's it, it, it's great to see that it recognises them from all around the world. Um, that's not just the British based veterans; it's, it's all of the exactly. Now, you know, I'm sure everybody knows bomber command was uh, was perhaps given something of a stigma in the post-war years yeah. um, and certainly through through um, Arthur Harris's tactics were criticised in, in latter days but it's easy to look at things with hindsight and rose-tinted glasses. Yeah. Especially um, these days when you've got people with whole different viewpoints of absolutely uh, from what from what was going back then it is and I, as you say it's so important that we've, we see Bomber Command veterans remembered um, and whether you also noticed in there that it's also dedicated to those that lost their lives in the bombing campaigns. Obviously, London was bombed very heavily, yeah. as were a lot of cities in the UK. Yeah. Um, and of course, it's also worth remembering that not just World War Two that you know, the UK was bombed. Yeah. Now we, we live in a, a tiny village here, and so between Nottingham and Derby, the next village you cross is called Stanton by Dale, and Stanton is an ironwork. What's what ironworks? And that was bombed by zeppelins wow. in the First World War. Okay. So 1918, there was zeppelins flying over, dropping bombs on on the UK. So it's it's something that we've been on both sides of. Yes. You know, I know a lot of countries have. Yeah. So I think it was only fitting that the memorial was not just to the bomber command pilots and crews themselves and the veterans, but also to those that had suffered during the bombing, whether that was in London, Coventry, Manchester, any of the big cities that were that were hit during the during the conflict. Yeah. Absolutely no. It was uh, a very special um, visit for me because 
you know, I remember when it was opening and lots of New Zealanders, lots of New Zealand veterans were flying across. Uh, and I, I really wished I could have been here with them. And um, a lot of those guys I knew, and they're all gone now. But uh, well, most of them are gone. There's probably a couple left. But and it's it's a generation that we owe so much to, mm. and it's a generation that are often quite reluctant to talk about the role they played. Yeah. And there's the, the I guess the, the the impression a lot of people get of the war veteran is the Uncle Albert character from Only Falls and All. During the war, yeah. and in my experience, it's not. The, the, yeah. the, there's, there's no attempt at glorifying what they went through. In fact, most don't want to talk about it. Yeah. Um, and it's only when pressed that, uh, that they were. I was at a, a dinner probably 15 or so more years ago now at um, Woodall Spa at Petwood, Petwood House, um, with some of the 617 guys from the Tirpitz raid, not right. from the um, from the Dams raid, from the yeah. Tirpitz. And it was only later in the night when a few whiskies had gone down and they felt they were able to talk. Yeah, and, and they were, they were bit, they'd been pressed enough. They, they weren't offering their opinions. They were responding to questions. Yeah. And it was very humble and just hairs on the back of your neck when you, you hear what these guys went through yeah um uh, you know it's it, yeah particularly on the turpits mission you know going out landing in russia and you know coming back through and it just it it, it beggars belief that somebody of that age had that bravery and tenacity to to carry out missions like that but yeah. as we've seen in ukraine when your homeland is at risk you will you will go the extra mile That's so true, um yeah. you know it's um it's reassuring to see that humanity has still got that tenacity in it. Yeah. Um, some questions. Uh, what's your favourite aircraft type? It's a difficult one. Um, put it, that one there, which is a Supermarine S6B. Oh, yes. I have a, a real thing about 1930s air racers. I think there was... Aeroplanes that look like they've been drawn on a piece of paper with a pen, yeah, a drawing board. Um, there's just... Yeah, yeah, everyone knows de Havilland aeroplane. You can look at the tail and know that it's a de Havilland aeroplane. Jeffrey de Havilland penned that design. Yeah. You look at some of those 1930s races, whether it's a Travel Air mystery ship or a Percival Mugle or the yeah the ultimate there, the Supermarine S6 yeah. um, aeroplane. I would have loved to have seen it. I think yeah, yeah my, my piloting skill was never up to flying anything like that. But I think if it had been, that would be the one that if I could pick an aeroplane from history, never never mind your Spitfire, never mind your SR71 Blackbird. Give me a Supermarine S6B. Wow, wow. Um, what's your favourite air show? You probably get to get to a lot of I do. Um, I've done Oshkosh. This year will be my 12th visit to Oshkosh, um, which is just, I, I refer to it as aviation mecca. Yeah. Um, if nobody's, if you haven't been before, it's it, the best likened to go into a music festival that has aeroplanes. It's got that same sort of vibe to it. Um, I'm a, big historian you know big fan of historic aviation so i yeah i do the majority of the shuttleworth shows here in the uk uh, the only reason i i've missed a couple this year is one clashes with oshkosh and one clashes with um the uh, flying legends show this year which is up at church venton so uh, uh, other than that i do all, all of the old warden shows um but i'm i'm a, again a, a bit of a historian of their shows and i'm I have a, a bit of a, an opinion on what an air show should be. Yeah. And I think an air show should be about entertaining people. 
you know, yeah, we can commemorate, we can remember, we can mark anniversaries, but at the end of the day, what we're trying to do is entertain people and inspire going back against this youth in aerospace. So the event that I really, really enjoy is called Midland Air Fest, and it takes place at Ragley Hall, which is a, a country estate in Worcestershire. Yeah. And the reason I like it is it has something for everybody. So there's everything from a pit special and a tiger moth through to the Eurofighter Typhoon, wow. the Red Arrows. So, and it, it's a really interesting event in it's a different dynamic. It's not your standard air show dynamic. You look at the audience and it's families. Yeah. And, and in fact, last year, Ando was across, yep. Sanderson, who was uh, who is one of our regular commentators there. And he asked the question, ladies and gentlemen, put your hands up if this is your very first air show. And more than half the hands went up wow. of people. And like, and so this is bringing a whole different audience into what we do. And I think we take it a bit for granted. Certainly yeah. in the UK we do. Yeah. Oh, it's another Spitfire. You know, oh, yeah. There were 18 at Duxford last year. There were only 12 this year. Yeah, yeah, only 12 <laughs> Spit. We, we've, you know, we get very blasé about it. You know, it's, it's Royal International Air to two this weekend. Oh yeah, there's only so many Hercules there. Yeah, back in the '90s, we get a lineup of Hercules. Yes. So we're very good at taking it for granted. And when you go to an event like that, it's a bit of a reality check. When you go, you know what? This is really cool, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and being in the grounds of the country estates, the smaller aeroplanes will land on. So things like the the Tiger Moth. We have the Stomp team there, and um, flying the SV4 Stomps. So um, yeah, pe people can get really close to the aeroplanes. Yeah. Um, which is and so they even have model aeroplanes flying before the show, mass hot air balloon. There's about 150 hot air balloons signed up for it this year. So they launch in the morning. They do a an evening night glow, big firework display. So something like that, I think, is important. To yes, the Royal International Air Two is brilliant. Yes, Flying Legends brilliant. Yeah. Yes, Shuttleworth's brilliant. But for something to really captivate and go, actually, you know little Johnny or Jane who's coming through at you know, the age of eight goes, you know what, that's what I want to do. I want to build aeroplanes, I want to design aeroplanes, I want to fly aeroplanes, yeah. or hot air balloons, or gliders, or helicopters, whatever it happens to be. Yeah. Okay. Uh, another question. You've obviously, in your career as a journalist, aviation journalist, you've met a lot of interesting people in the industry, a lot of interesting pilots. Are there any that stick in your mind as, as being really, really um, outstanding? <laughs> In terms of personalities, yes. Um, I was lucky enough to meet both Winkle Brown and Alex Henshaw, who are both consummate gentlemen, yeah. um, great raconteurs. Um, I met Kermit Weeks a few times. I know Kermit from various events. Yeah, brilliant character. Yeah. Um, there are lots of people in the Warbird world who are just fascinating to talk to and got great, great stories. Yeah. Um, you know, with you know, some of our garden parties, we've had various people here. You know, John Dodd, who flies everything, really, uh, has been sat in the chair you're sat in, you know, just talking aeroplanes. And yeah. it's that off-the-record, informal, over-a-glass-of-wine conversation where you really just learn what it's like to fly these aeroplanes. So, yeah, very lucky situation to be put in. But, um, I remember... Um, Speaking to, to Eric Brown, Winkle Brown, at um, <clears throat> the um, it was one of the Historic Aircraft Association symposiums at Hendon, and even in his nineties, absolutely razor sharp brain, and he was talking about flying the the early jets, particularly some of the German jets that he tested uh, in the immediate post war years, 
And in the Q&A, he was pulling facts and figures from the back of his brain on critical Mac numbers on the ME262. And it's like, right. I can't remember what I had for lunch yesterday, let, <laughs> let alone something, you know, 60, 70 years ago. So, yeah, lots of really interesting people, um, you know, whether they were veterans uh, or whether they, you know, the, the contemporary people we've got now. Aviation is, is full of two people. Um, the people you trust your life to and the others. Yep. And luckily, the others are in a minority. Yep. The aviation world is, as you've seen, I'm sure, on this trip, Dave, you, you instantly have something in common with people when, it, when you start talking aeroplanes. And you're welcomed into the family. You're welcomed into their house, their home, you know, their friends. And yep. it, it, it is a, it's a horrible catchphrase, but it is like a band of brothers. Yeah, you, you, aviation camaraderie is a very powerful thing, and um, so through through that, I, I you know I've, I've met incredible amount of people through social media, like yourself. Yeah, you know, we met on social media, and you know you, some of my very very best friends are people that I've met online, and we just have that kindred spirit of having that mutual love or madness that is aviation. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly what this trip for me has been about. Uh, uh, oh, maybe. Maybe three of the people that I've caught up with, I'd already known, mm -hmm. maybe four. Um, everyone else, almost everyone else that I've caught up with, are people that I've never met before or the people that I only know from Facebook or forums. Yep. And instantly, it's like, oh, we're all old friends. You and me. Like old exactly. Friends. Yeah. It, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, and it, it's, yeah, aviation is a leveler as well. And you know, I you know, spent a lot of time at the Royal Air Force Club. Yeah. It doesn't matter whether you're an air commodore. It doesn't matter whether you're a squadron leader. Yeah. It doesn't matter whether you're not in the services at all, like me. You sit down around a table and you start talking about aeroplanes, and there's no hierarchy. Yeah. Yeah. There's um. You know. Yes, you have respect for for people who've done incredible things, um. But invariably, they're more interested in what you've done. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah, yeah. We, um, I keep going back to the fact we have this garden party at the house. We live in the centre of the country, so each summer we get people from you know, that we've known because we've both lived in in various places come to the house. Yeah. And a couple of years ago, we had Roger Galt here, who's a past master of the Honourable Company of Air Pilots, and um, also was ex boss of Four Squadron. So he flew Hunters, Javelins, and the very early Harrier One. Right. Um, and Roger and his wife came up for the garden party and spoke to everybody in the village that was here. Yeah, right. not aeroplane people. Yeah, and the following day, everyone said, "That Roger's lovely, isn't he? What does he do?" And he <laughs> hadn't told anybody that that's incredible career. He yeah. was interested in you. Yeah. So tell me, Dave, what do you do? Yeah. <laughs> Where are you? Yeah. yeah. And and I think that's the sign of a really good leader, somebody who shows interest in you. Absolutely. Uh, and I think that that's something which certainly, in my experience, the Air Force do very very well is um, yeah that um, that leadership skill. Yes. Yeah. Um, the last of my questions of uh, pop questions that I've got. <laughs> um, you work uh, obviously with your magazine now, looking at a lot of future technologies, a lot of things that are being developed, and we all know that uh, a lot of these things might be in development now and look like amazing projects, but uh, they'll fall by the wayside and, and never happen. Um, what What are you seeing right now that you think? is something for the future that will be good and will be the next big thing in aviation? Is there anything that stands out? It's always a difficult question because there are so many things under development. Yeah. Um, yes, we're working on new technologies. Yes, we're working on electric-powered aircraft. Yes, we're working on hydrogen-powered aircraft. Yeah. Gaseous hydrogen, liquid hydrogen, what's the way forward? Yeah. You know, it's... Um, 
yeah, you need a huge amount of it or you need to compress it under I think it's minus 256 degrees centigrade in order to get it down to, to the to the temperature that you need to burn it. We're not there yet. Um, EV tolls, electric vertical takeoff and landing, the so-called flying cars. Yeah. We're not there yet. Battery technology is not there yet. Um, you know, things are coming. But in the meantime, there are lots of other things that we can do. I wrote a piece recently for the magazine where we looked at current jet engines. So Rolls-Royce, Pratt & Whitney, General Electric. What can you do to an existing jet engine to actually make it more efficient? Right. So if you can save half a percent here, half a percent there, over the number of engines, over the number of hours those engines fly every year, that half a percent is actually a big difference. Yeah. Um, so it looked at things like actually washing blades. There's the technology now and, and solutions where you can wash a turbine blade. Okay. So what's the point in that? Well, think of the leading edge of a wing with all those dead flies on it. Yeah. Well, think what's inside that turbine engine. Okay. So if you can clean those blades, you can make that, that engine more efficient, burn less fuel, therefore less carbon emissions. So I think there's, the immediate future is lots of incremental changes. Yeah. Um, Yes, we, yeah, we might get to hydrogen power one day. Um, I think we will get to electric power one day, but there will be restrictions in how that can be used. Uh, I was at the Paris Air Show a couple of weeks ago, and there was a company called Aura Aero, which is a French company that produce an aerobatic aeroplane, mm -hmm. and they're producing an electric version of their aerobatic aeroplane. Now, if you think about it, you don't need long endurance for that. What's the average aerobatic sortie? Half an hour, maybe? Yeah. So I think one way to look at it is those technologies are suitable for certain uses. You know, you're not going to fly from London to New York on an electric-powered aeroplane. No. But what's to stop you using an electric-powered aeroplane to train people to fly? Circuits and bumps, touch and goes. Because you can recharge that between sorties or you can swap the batteries out. Yeah. Um, there's, there's, there's things like that. My worry at the moment is there's lots of things being developed and there's not a lot of joined up thinking in terms of how these can actually be operated. Right. You know, we, there's a company called Eve who are developing an EV toll. They're actually owned by Embraer, the, the um, Brazilian airline airliner manufacturer. Yeah. Uh, they made a statement just this last week to say, we can get these aircraft out, but the, the power infrastructure isn't there to charge them. You know, the, there's not the, the, the mains current that we need at sufficient locations to get the charge in. Yeah. Uh, I was at a conference in Dublin earlier this year called Revolution Aero, um, and it was probably the most realistic conference I've been to in terms of future flight. Yeah. And um, there were lots of people saying, yeah, yeah it's not going to be next year, 2025 maybe, yeah, maybe a bit later. Uh, and somebody made the point that, a lot of these electrical vertical takeoff and landing flying cars have a different power system. So if you own one that's manufactured by Joby, for example, and you land at a vertiport, which is the, the name we're all using now for these, what you would previously have called heliports, but they're called vertiports. Yeah. If that vertiport is owned by a rival manufacturer, let's say it's Beta Technologies or Vertical Aerospace, you can't guarantee that your plug will work in their socket. No, well, and you'd think we'd learn this from mobile phones, wouldn't you, with iPhones and Android yeah. not working on the same charger. Yeah, exactly. um, so there's lots of things like that that still need to be ironed out. Um, so I'm not going to say that we're not going to make our net zero target, but we need to work really hard. And again, this goes back to what I said earlier about where's the next 
Frank Whittle. Where's yeah. the next Kelly Johnson? Because those are the people that are going to help us meet that net zero 2030 target. Yeah. And, and it is vital that we do it. Not just from an environmental point of view. You know, if we don't make that net zero target, we as an industry are going to have even more stigma than we have at the moment. And the public are going to be restricted in how they can fly. Yeah. You know, whether that's on flight shaming taxes, you know, there'll be a tax that you know that will, will it limit the amount of flying you can do every year. Yeah, you know, what what's going to happen if we don't meet this target? So right. we we as an industry have to work really, really hard. Um so it's yes, there's lots of really interesting technology out there, lots of very, very promising technology out there. There's lots of really wacky technology out there. Yeah. You know, um you know, we've been looking in the magazine at things like rim-driven electric turbine engines, which way beyond my pay grade when it comes to understanding the, the physics behind it. But there's lots of very clever people, much cleverer than me, working on things. Right. Um, so the future's out there. And I don't think it's a case of which one's going to work and which one isn't going to work. I think it's a combination of solutions that will get us to where we need to be. It's the, it's the very long answer to a very short question. <laughs> <laughs> Well, so long as uh, once all these new technologies come on board and everyone's happy with with the future, so long as we can still have warbirds, I'll be happy. Well, you know, as part of the interview I did for the um, for the the turbine engine article where we talked about cleaning blades and things like that, I spoke to Rolls Royce five miles away from here. We did it over Teams, would you believe, rather than actually going doing it face to face. And so Rolls Royce have got the Spitfire Mark Nineteen and they've got the Merlin. One of their projects at the moment is to convert those aeroplanes to run on unleaded fuel. Right. Okay. And yeah, you say oh, that's great. Yes, yeah, somebody. But no, Rolls Royce are looking at doing that. Yeah. That's the difference here. You've yeah. got the, the the industry might and technology. So that for me gives me great hope for the warbirds. And I would like to think that the uh, yeah, some of the last gallons of of oil that are out there will be burnt in in a a Spitfire or a Mustang or something like that when it when the time comes. But um, it's it's good that yeah we. We we are looking at alternative technologies. You know, unleaded aviation fuel is a thing. Is you know the future. Yeah, you know, there are airfields now in California where you cannot buy leaded fuel. Yes. Um, and you know, and there's no particular reason why the majority of engines can't aero engines can't run on um, unleaded fuel. It's just a case of getting them certified to do so. Right. And the majority don't need any changes other than the placard saying, please fill this with unleaded fuel. Okay. Um, but it's a you know, it's a, get, a case of getting regulators and industries to pull together to do this. Again, I, I wrote something for the magazine recently, which um, which got some debate going on, on this. But uh, yeah, if you can convert a Griffin and a Merlin to run on unleaded, I'm sure you can get an IO540 to run on it. Yeah, absolutely. So long as they don't convert them to electric. <laughs> that won't sound quite right. Unless, we, unless we've got a speaker in there playing a Merlin sound yeah, over yeah. the top. <laughs> well, thanks very much, Steve. It's been great to hear a bit about your career and, and also um, your thoughts on the future. Thank you, Dave. And um, nice of you to come and visit us here in Derbyshire. Yeah, fantastic to be here. Great stuff. Cheers. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Mm-hmm.